Welcome to the broadcast. It is Thursday, May 9th, 2019. And this webinar is designed, this broadcast is designed specifically for the, the family and friends of Evoke participants. Uh, so no matter what age, no matter what relationship you are, those of you listening to this broadcast via the podcast app, this is an idea to understand what Evoke is, what we do, what wilderness therapy is more, more broadly, but also how you can not only come to understand what we're doing, but also how you can be supportive of your, your friend or loved one who's going through the process of our, of our program. So that's where we're going to begin. I will say to the listeners, those who are listening via the podcast apps, that although this is specific to our program and it might interest you, more broadly, it talks about the idea, I talk about the idea tonight of how can you help somebody who's going through a therapeutic process or a treatment process. Maybe you know somebody uh, or, or love somebody or care about somebody who's in treatment. And so some of the ideas I talked about tonight will be applicable to you no matter what that program is, even if it's not a vote. So with that, I'm going to go right into it. And like I mentioned at the outset, before we began recording, you can submit questions now or throughout the broadcast. And my moderator, Lindsay, she'll pass those on to me when it's the appropriate time or when I have time in the broadcast. So look forward to those as we go. Um, Let's start off with the idea of the decision. The decision to send your child, adolescent or young adult child, to a program such as Evoke. Um, sometimes it, it happens because there's a lot of failed attempts. Sometimes we're the first intervention because, and that's, that's changed over the years, because I think it's become more acceptable and understanding that to be in a program that, that is set in the outdoors where you're unplugged and in nature, more and more and more the research in our culture shows us that that's beneficial to nearly everybody. So it's not as drastic as it used to be. For some, we're the, the attempt that comes after home therapy or other interventions, less invasive methods ha have worked. For, I mean, for some, because they've had other attempts to try to intervene with the problem, experiential, meaning real life, experience in wilderness therapy can be very effective because we don't just do talk therapy. It's not just about sitting in a therapist's office and talking about your problems, but it's immersion into an experience, right? All of you, no matter what age you are, can relate to the experience where if you go to a cabin with somebody, if you're spending the night at somebody's house, if you're on vacation with somebody, that while it might be easy to get along and to problem and solve and to communicate during short little bursts, you know, for example, going out to dinner with somebody or spending an afternoon with somebody, it can become more difficult when you spend a lot of time with somebody. And so think about that. Just like for all of us, even if we're not struggling with mental health or addiction issues, having lunch with a friend is quite easy, but try going on vacation with a friend and see, and I think many of you will recognize that Conflict comes up then, right? You have to problem solve and work together. So that's really what wilderness therapy is. It's a real life kind of immersive experience. Um, when the child can't be part of the, of the solution, I get parents asking me so often, uh, they're at that critical point where they say, you know, should we send our child 
when is it time to send our child to a program outside of the home? And I don't know the answer to that question because that's really your question to answer. But one of the things that I ask them is, do you think the child can be a, a part of the solution at home? Are they willing to try things at home, willing to work it out, willing to, to kind of go through a process, whether it be in therapy, maybe working on a, on a contract at home, having a dialogue or discussion with you where it feels like they can be a part of the problem, or excuse me, part of the solution. And so if you're still at that point, maybe you don't take this more drastic step. If the, if the behavior is very dangerous, right? That's where a lot of people might take this step as a first step because the danger is pretty risky, excuse me, the, the, the behavior is pretty risky. There could be evidence of self-harm. There could be dangerous, risky behaviors. There could be substance use or abuse. And so sometimes you're gonna take a really significant step fairly early on into your awareness of the problem because of the, the potential risk there. You know, is it getting to the point either for you or for your child where there's despair and hopelessness in the process, right? Wilderness therapy, a change of scenery can really inject hope into a situation. What's the context at home? How are the peers? How, how the, how's the, the conflict in the family? Is there another child at home that's suffering because of the, the, the child that, that's being considered for our program. And sometimes that can be the case. Sometimes children that are left at home after a child is sent away will talk about the, the change or the shift in the feeling in the home, the culture, and the peace that comes into it. Are the problems escalating? Is it getting to be so that you're, you're walking on eggshells? You know, there's a, there's a common experience that family members and specifically parents have when they write their first letter or two to their child in our program. And that is they, they don't realize how far they have come in accommodating, in accommodating for behavior at home. You know, locking their door, hiding their money, those kinds of things. And, and they don't notice it because it slowly happens over time and you kind of become numb to the fact that you've You've changed so much of your life around. And so the question is, is it too much? Is it a last resort? I will tell you my opinion about wilderness therapy. I don't think it needs to be a last resort. And I think 20 some years ago, 23 years ago, when I started in this work, I even thought of it more of, a, of in a way, as a last resort. But two of my own children have gone through the process and we were nowhere near a last resort. And that's in part because I, I realize what most of our participants realize while they're with us, which is everybody could benefit from this approach. When parents come out to visit sometimes, they'll say, I wish I had this, or I wish there was something like this for adults. So it needn't be a last resort. Are they going to be with other deviants, with, with children that are worse with, than them? The odds are there are going to be some children in the group that are higher functioning than they are, and there are going to be some that are lower functioning. And, and so part of, of, of life is that you're, you're in an environment where who are you going to gravitate toward? Who are you more vulnerable to? If I had a perfect scenario for every child that went through our program, I would want some of the time in the group where they are the highest functioning and some of the time in the group where they're the lowest functioning to kind of see what they do with that information. The other thing that's really important to point out, 
And this is not something that, that people see very clearly unless, unless they've really been in our program, is that there, there's not any unsupervised time. It's not even like a residential program or even a hospital sometimes. The children, adolescents and young adults are, are supervised 24-7. There's something we have called earshot. And that refers to the idea that no student or client is allowed to have conversations with their peers outside of the staff's earshot. And so when you think about it, it's probably the most ideal way to treat somebody. There, there are so many people that talk about the peer group at home and who they're hanging around. I've even had clients come to the program and join groups where they knew somebody else in the group. And there might have even been a negative dynamic between the two of them prior to coming to a vote. But I don't automatically suggest that, that they be separated. What I say to the parents is, isn't that ideal? Wouldn't you want your, your child and their peers, the ones that are potentially negatively influencing them or that, that are part of negative dynamics, wouldn't you want them to be treated at the same time? So it, it's not as clear cut. It is one of the things that our clients and our students will tell parents is that everybody is worse than me or at least a few of them are, are far worse than me because that's a parent's greatest nightmare. And the fact of the matter is almost globally, if you pulled a child out of a context and that's all you did, you moved him or her out of a school or, or, or high school or situation and you put him somewhere fresh, it would be a matter of days or hours before they found the people that, that, they, that they were hanging around with in the previous school. So for us, treating a cross-section of, of individuals who are struggling is ideal. One thing I ask family members who are considering our program, and again, I can't tell you what to do. It's not my job as a therapist. I can discuss the issues with you and the principles involved in making the decision, but I can't make the decision for you. And one of the things I tell parents is, think about an intervention being too early. What are the potential risks? Well, one of the risks are is that the child thinks you're overreacting. One of the risks are is that the therapy isn't as relevant because the child isn't really struggling as much as you think. You've kind of overshot things. And so those are the risks. What's the risk if it's too late? If an intervention is too late? And first of all, their very life or safety is in jeopardy if it's too late. And second of all, the patterns have become so entrenched, so solidified and cemented, that they're harder and harder to, to treat. And in both of the situations with my two children who went through, one was 10 years ago, 12 years ago, and one was last summer, two different children at two different ages. And, and definitely I erred on the side of too early versus too late, again, because I believe that virtually everybody could benefit from this intervention. Um, in both cases, there were tools and skills and concepts and discussions as family members that we make use of that, that are a part of, of not getting to that point. You, you know, when you think about treating a disease like cancer, you don't wait until it gets to stage three or four or five, right? It's too late then. You treat it as early as possible. So 
if that's part of the consideration and the question, am I overreacting? Just think about the pros and cons of each potential decision. So what is wilderness therapy? Let's talk about what wilderness therapy is and what it's not. Wilderness therapy is a metaphor for life. Hiking, camping, working in small groups really replicates family life. We don't even have to hear long descriptions from parents for us to realize pretty quickly exactly what's going on for the child because it shows up in these small groups. These small groups become a microcosm, a small example of the way that the child was operating at home with their family and friends and teachers and authority figures, peers and siblings. They, they just, it gets exposed because that's what you're doing. I've shared this before, but I, I heard about some research or, or a podcast recently where NASA uses wilderness therapy to train its new astronaut teams just because of what I just described. It doesn't work for them to have team building exercises they participate in primitive living wilderness therapy because it exposes them to challenges and vulnerability and the, the need for communication and trust and problem solving. Wilderness therapy, we use a lot of rituals. Rituals like um, moving from phase to phase, right? Water phase, air phase, earth phase. And those become metaphors and rituals for transitioning. And we've lost a lot of that in our community, in our society. Rituals that, that suggest and give meaning to, to the various phases of growth in our life. It's an unplugged environment, a digital detox. I say this all the time. When I started as a wilderness therapist 23 years ago, we saw some benefit in getting kids away from video games and computers. But today, it's obvious to all of us that... that something that, that we could benefit from being unplugged more. People say this all the time, you read about this. Nature and being unplugged is now the new luxury. When I go on a vacation, and it's rare that I do, when I go on a vacation where there's no cell phone service, I used to go to, to Lake Powell, Arizona every year, and cell phone service was, was spotty, if not impossible. That was one of the greatest luxuries for me. It invites a kind of mindfulness and calmness. I go to a personal retreat with a group of men every year. And part of it is we give up our cell phones for part of it. And it changes the way that we, we are with ourselves and with each other. So the digital detox is a part of it. It's, it's, it's primitive and raw. You're in nature. And so what happens for clients when they're in nature and they're having to deal with the elements is it, it brings up a lot of emotions. It brings up a, a realization that you can't control things. You're away from distractions, even positive distractions. One of the things that people will ask is, can, can my child or the child will ask, can I read this, this or that book? Something for recreation. And while we have reading material, we, we don't just give it merely for recreation. We have fun out there every day, but we also want to focus on the issues at hand. It's real work. It's beautiful. You know, some people say that just the aspect of being in nature was the most impactful healing part of it. It invites a kind of feeling and a kind of mindfulness and a kind of focus. It reduces anxiety and it reduces mood 
uh, irregularities. You know, what, what psychiatrists know is that there are a handful of things that improve people's mood besides medication or therapy, and it's a good diet, good sleep, and exercise in the outdoors. The research is, is, is plentiful in that area. And so for me, and of course I'm in it every day, but wilderness therapy is obvious. It's, it's, an, it's an obvious idea that should be more mainstream than it is. And it's really a delivery method, right? We have therapists that are really well-trained. I think maybe one of the biggest misunderstandings about wilderness therapy in general is that it's not a clinically sophisticated and complex approach. It absolutely is. Absolutely is. But, but when you deliver that, that therapy, and we have therapists with a, with a host with, with various skills and tools and approaches and models, when you, when you deliver that on top of the wilderness, small group living, primitive nomadic model, meaning that they don't live in cabins and they're, they're always hiking, when you deliver it using that as the platform, I've never seen anything more powerful in, in encouraging change. And wilderness therapy is a family intervention. I mean, you're all listening to or watching a broadcast right now that is geared toward family and friends. And we do a whole bunch of things. I'll talk about those a little bit later. But this really is a family focus. Just because temporarily we've removed the child from the family doesn't mean it's not a family program. I specifically, and we in general, spend as much energy on trying to give family members at home the support that they need to, to, to figure out how to change themselves and to support the child that's with us as we do the child out of the program. So it's a family intervention. What's the, what's the theory of wilderness? It's, it's the use of, of metaphors and story and communal living and camping to bypass resistance. What that means is this. If I walk into the room with you and I start trying to teach you something or talk about therapy or issues with you. If I do that, it's easy for you to kind of defend it. You know, argue with it, not take it, not take it in all the way. But when you're out camping, sometimes the sessions I have with, with a client, we're just working on making a bojo fire, rubbing sticks together to make a fire. And how they handle that and problem solve that tells me all that I need to know. And we haven't talked about one issue. When I see clients and students interact with each other, or I get reports of how they're interacting with each other, I learn all that I need to know to see what's going on with the child. Whereas some of them could do very well in talk therapy. They could say all the right things. It's a, it's a positive peer milieu. The, the peers are as important to the treatment as the staff or the therapist in many, many instances. We have an open enrollment program, which means that there's always somebody new in the group and always somebody more senior in the group. And the more senior members, by and large, um, model and, and mentor the younger clients in the program. When a, when a client or, or an adolescent is resistant, it can help with that too because it's a really safe, powerful container. We have children that sit, that threaten to young, run, that become very oppositional, and, and out there everything slows down. You have time and you have space 
to deal with that level of resistance. Self-esteem is boosted through doing something difficult and challenging. Self-esteem is when, when I can't turns into I did it. And I've said this throughout the years. Even in the very few cases that I would describe as having minimal positive impact, and that's, that's, that's the exception to the rule. But in those handful, I had about 1,100 clients in my caseload in my career. And the five or six that I would say were the most difficult, even in those cases, there was a sense from the client, from the participant, that they did something hard. And they carried that with them. Sense of accomplishment and identity, what it means to be an individual. Part of the separating the child out of the family for a time is that everybody focuses on their own identity, not just their relationship with the other person, but, but getting yourselves in, in different rooms across the country and figuring out from, from the starting point, who are you? What do you feel? It's not just about your reaction and, and the back and forth between your parents, but what's going on for you? Like I said, the group becomes a microcosm for the family. The, the small universe in a group of seven to nine students or clients, four staff and a therapist, becomes a miniature family. And that small little universe out there in each of the groups mirrors or, or, or replicates or looks like the big universe at home. Removing distractions and, and defenses. The inability to manipulate the elements. When I go out there, I remember one time it was raining, it was freezing, it was October, and I wanted to do sessions in my car. Right? I wanted to, and that's a no-no, by the way. I'm in my tent, I'm having a hard time getting a fire because it's raining. Uh, you know, I'm having a hard time staying dry, the whole nine yards. And in between my, my session and the next session, I looked at the staff and I said, I'm going to give you five minutes to talk me out of having sessions in my car. The staff's name was Stephen. And Stephen said to me, just show them how to suffer. Show them how to struggle. And I realized that was the thing. And it gave me all the motivation that I needed just to show them that it's hard. It's difficult. The, the rites of passage, the rituals, the whole thing is a rite of passage, right? It, it's this idea that you go into the woods and you come out a changed person through the experience. It's a great environment to kind of see what's going on, to assess what's going on because you've removed so many variables and so many distractions. The peers at home, even the family at home. So you see, you can look at the child and see what's going on. You were removing the negative influences or at least the negative influences without observation like I mentioned earlier. It, it invites a certain kind of vulnerability because you're way outside of your com comfort zone. It's a huge culture shock. You can see it on the clients and the students' faces the first day or few in the program. They have these wide-eyed look like, what happened? Yesterday I was in my parents' apartment in New York City or, or Los Angeles or Chicago, or Denver, or Seattle, or wherever. And today I'm sitting in the middle of the high desert in Utah or Central Oregon with a group of smelly peers and smelly staff and a therapist who's bundled up sitting on a camping chair. What happened to me? And that shift creates a kind of openness and a vulnerability. The development of interdependence, right? 
you can't do wilderness on your own. You need to listen to the more senior members of the group. You need to listen to the staff and the therapist just to be comfortable and, and okay, let alone to, to, to work on your issues in therapy. I like the fact that it's, it's, it shows that your, your coping mechanisms, the old ways of, of trying to escape and avoid and not feel or distract, that they don't work. And so for some, time, for some students, it's, it's several weeks of trying what used to work and realizing it doesn't work anymore. And it's only when, when what we were trying doesn't work anymore are we willing to try something different. So practically, what does a typical day look like? I've written up a schedule of an average day. You wake up in the morning at 8 a.m. There's some kind of gathering around the fire from the night before or, or the group circle. Um, there, there's breakfast time, cooking or preparation. Then you have to, we call it crushing coals. You have to cover up the fire pit because there's going to be a hike that day. Maybe there's a morning group at 10 a.m. There's hiking. You stop on the hike for lunch. You might have personal time on the hike where you're reading or working on assignments or letters. You're hiking again. You're getting to camp in the evening, making fire and getting the campfire and, and the entire campsite set up. Dinner preparation and, and, and dinner happens. Group therapy at night. And then maybe there's games or stories around the fire. That's kind of an average day. And what happens throughout the day or throughout the week is, are, are these kinds of things. Standing groups. Standing groups happen anywhere from a, once or twice to maybe 10 times a day. And those are five to 15 minute groups that anybody virtually can call anytime. Talk about what's bothering them, problem solve, work on a relationship issue. Those can happen anytime and all the time out, out there in the group. We encourage and practice meditation, yoga, mindfulness activities. Various activities that, that the research has shown to get people in touch with what's going on for them, with their, with their pain, their sadness, their grief, their trauma, their loneliness, their hurt. It's really just a focusing on what we're feeling. Individual se sessions happen with the therapist. The therapist is out there a couple of days a week, and so it happens then. And they also happen with the staff a couple of times a week also. Layovers are the two days typically that the therapists are there. There might be another day or two where there's a layover where we stay in one site, campsite. We might go on a day hike and come back to that. Or we're doing laundry, working on reading and writing assignments. Maybe the weather's especially difficult, so we're holding up in our tents, waiting for it to pass. Laundry, laundry and showers happen a couple of times a week where the, the, the clients send out laundry and get new, fresh laundry. They're, they're asked to take showers a couple of times a week. Food distribution happens a couple of times a week. Somebody asked earlier, what do they eat? It is granola, oats in the morning, fruit and vegetables every day. For lunch, it's, it's, it's trail mix, cheese, meats, uh, tortillas, peanut butter, um, kind of lunch food, fish, like tuna fish, salmon, like, like canned salmon. That's your, that's your lunch type of food. There could be leftovers from the night before, bean burritos from the night before. In the evening, they're, they're having pasta. They're having meat a couple of times a week. Um, they're cooking beans and rice to make spaghetti. They'll mix in vegetables there, maybe mix in meat there. So it's a, it's a, it's a low carb diet. There can be a lot of fat at times to help people in the cold weather. It's got plenty of nutrition 
and calories for the, the, the work and, and, and dealing with the elements out there, but low on preservatives. We try to do organic as much as possible. We can accommodate for kosher. We can accommodate for vegan or other food allergies. So that's the, the, the basic overview of a typical day. Personal time happens each day. That's assignments from the, the therapist, assignments in the program that are for everybody. There's really three kinds of curriculum. The hard skills are things like making fires and making a, a leather pouch, carving a spoon. That's the hard skills. Soft skills are, are things like using a, appropriate communication, not attacking language or blaming language, kind of learning how to talk, therapy ideas. Then there's the therapy assignments that the therapist specifically assigns to each client or student for the week. There's academics that are available for all students and clients. Letters to and from home are part of what might be happening during a given day. Solos are an experience where they'll go out for a couple of days on their own, supervised by the staff, but they're not talking to any peers and they sit with themselves for a couple of days and reflect. It's kind of a, a meditative time. There's of course chores that rotate every day. And most importantly, everything becomes grist for the mill. Meaning everything is subject to therapy. And I forgot to write this down or mention it, but we also try to have fun time. We call it mandatory fun time because sometimes some clients want to opt out of it. We try to have fun time every day. It can be physical activities and games. It can be games around the fire. We, we believe and we know that having fun is an important and healthy part of life. So that's, that gives you an overview of the kinds of activities that go on out there. How does wilderness work? It disrupts the old patterns. It, it turns up the volume and intensifies what's going on at home. The natural and logical consequences that happen in nature become the teacher. So it's not mom and dad that are teaching, it's mother nature that is teaching. If you don't build a shelter, well, if you don't take the time, it's gonna fall down in the wind or in the rain and you're gonna be up all night working with the staff to stay dry. The shift from external locus of control, which means what happens to me makes me happy or sad, that's external locus, to internal, which is how I choose or how I deal with it is what makes me happy. It, it, it's, it's kind of forcing clients students to look at themselves. There's no walls, but you really can't go anywhere. And so what people know who do this for a long time is that you can't take credit for a lot of the good that happens in wilderness. The, the context, the environment, the situation is incredibly important and impactful. And I've had therapists that have come from schools and hospitals and residential treatment programs and they come into our program and they say, this is so much easier. I can do so much more with this than I could. Even with, I've had one therapist who brought a couple of clients with him. And he said it was remarkable how much more effective he was at dealing with the clients inside the program than he was at his therapeutic school that he had worked, worked with them before. It's a, it's a systemic model too. We're, we're working with home therapists and resources, family, the wilderness staff, all of it becomes part of the treatment team. What are the goals in wilderness therapy? It's a wake-up call. You know, get their attention. I think 
in the early days of wilderness therapy, in the early 1990s and in, in the 80s and 70s, that's all it was, was a shock to the system. Now we, we've added so much more clinical and therapeutic work, but it is still a wake-up call. It's a chance to buy some time. It inter interrupts a crisis. You don't want to make difficult long-term decisions in a crisis. And so wilderness gives everybody a timeout. There's obviously therapeutic benefit. While, while the key often is how to maintain that, in the short term, I've never seen, like I said, and I've been around for a long time and seen hundreds of programs, dozens of types of programs. I've never seen anything more impactful than wilderness therapy in my career. The feedback and evaluation that comes is powerful in wilderness. Families will say to therapists all the time, every week, on their first or the second phone call, after the therapist is describing what he or she has seen, the parents will say, you get my kid, you got him. It's exactly what we were seeing at home. The preparation for whatever the next step is, right? Getting them ready. And there's a softening effect, which means some of the more difficult behavior gets smoothed out here a little bit because we can take on a little bit more. And so it gets people ready for an environment that they would not have been ready for had they not come to wilderness and softened a little bit. It changes the, the level of care, right? You might have needed, if you didn't come to wilderness, to go to a hospital-like setting because your behavior was so disruptive or dangerous. But after wilderness, it might be more like an intensive outpatient program or a therapeutic school. Social skills are, are, are valuable. Even our, you know, our clients that work on the autism spectrum disorder, they learn social skills because it's happening all day long in real time. And then uh, some formal assessment is a part of it. So how do we involve the family? Every parent has a parent coordinator. And that, that's somebody at our office that's in charge of making sure that the parents get the information that they need day to day. Parents are offered a parent mentor, a former parent who has gone through our program, who volunteers to help people, especially in the early phases of the program, kind of go through the difficult, anxious, scary, unknown parts of the program. We have an interactive parent portal where parents log on and there are assignments and resources there that, that happen each week. Weekly phone calls with the therapist, twice weekly broadcasts with, with you guys and a, and a huge library of old broadcasts that you can listen to on the podcast app or while you're with us, you can look at the, the visual broadcast on the webinar portal. Parent workshops. We ask if you can that all parents come out to a parent workshop while their child is with us in the middle of the program. Eventually getting on the phone with your child and the therapist while they're in the program is a goal that we have for all of our clients. Some don't get it, but virtually most of them do. And that's our goal that all can start that family therapy over the phone. Visits to the field. Many, many families come out to the field midway through the program and or at the end and spend a day or two in the group with their child, which means that your child has seen other parents come out to the field and that's valuable for them to see that. It's more transparent. They get to kind of practice and listen to what other parents and, and children are doing and, and they learn from that. We try to do parent support groups around the country. We do it in our, in our bigger markets, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, 
Chicago, Toronto. We try to get there as often as we can. And then some of our smaller markets, we try to get there at times also. Additional services. We've now started a program a few years ago where if you want to do your own work in a deeper way, you can come to our Finding You program in Park City, Utah. Or if you want to come as a family at some point, you can do family, finding family. You can even do couples intensives. You can do a, a pursuits program anywhere in the world, an adventure program anywhere in the world from a few days to a month. If you're a young adult or a family, we have that opportunity also. And then also we have parent coaching available for the long term, if that's something that you want. So why Evoke? What makes us different? First of all, our, the amount of communication, the amount of, of making sure that the families are involved is something that we, we pride ourselves on. And when we started 20 years ago, changed the field of wilderness therapy. Clinical sophistication was another thing that prior to our program starting in 1998 was not near anywhere in the United States at the level that it has now become. That was our whole idea when we started our program in 1998 was let's bring what we know clinically, therapeutically to wilderness therapy. Whole health, mind, body, spirit, diet, meditation, exercise, kind of focusing on not just the head, but the, the whole self. Our ability to decode the wilderness experience. And what I mean is, as wonderful as wilderness therapy is, you need to learn as a family member, as a parent, you need to learn what it means for, for going back home, for after this is all over. Evoke is committed to organizational health. And what does that mean? That means that all of our therapists are encouraged to go to therapy, to do their own work. Uh, at the highest level, it's required that they do their own work. At the mid-level, it is strongly, strongly encouraged and supported. There are stipends for various activities. We provide free yoga for, for our, our, our staff because we believe that if the, the organization itself is, is healthier and, and on this journey, that they'll be able to provide better care for, for clients and families. The owners being involved. I'm one of the owners, obviously. I have two partners also. Owners being involved in day-to-day -day operations. One of my partners is a therapist and in charge of our research, and the other one is in charge of both programs, overseeing both programs every day. Family support is unparalleled. And I'm gonna, I have another slide where I'll talk about that, but the, the amount of family work. And, and not just the amount, folks. Evoke has a different approach than virtually all wilderness therapy and therapeutic programs. It's in these broadcasts. If you're new to this, click on the podcast app and peruse our library. Look through the library and listen to some and see if you don't hear something that is uncommon, something you've never heard before. Our commitment to evidence. We have been committed to research. We've done more research than any other wilderness therapy program in the United States for longer. And it's not really even close. It's not close. We've been doing it for longer. We've been published more. We've contributed to the research in the field more, and it's not close. And our focus on generalizing, mean, meaning not just having a great experience and patting ourselves on the back that for you know, six to 12 weeks, your child did really well with us, but to say, what can we do to make sure that that 
that keeps up after the program. And part of it is, frankly, the parent curriculum. How can you help as a family member? Ask questions. Don't be an expert. Really try to understand what your, what your family members are going through, their story, what they have gone through. It's often different than your experience of, of the child who's sent here. So really try to empathize with them. Express concerns, but listen to their explanations and respect their boundaries. They're going through something very, very difficult. And your criticism and judgment can be incredibly taxing for them. If you're asked to, write a letter to the participant. We have a podcast on, on writing letters. Listen to that. Try to avoid judging, blaming, or nagging. Getting somebody who's struggling with mental health or addiction takes more than love. And I think that's, that's something that, that, having gone through this, when you go through this, you know that that's true. Turn it over to the child. Meaning that the, the child is accountable for, even though they may have been impacted and, and affected by their parents and the mistakes that the parents have made, and we all make mistakes, it's now the child's wound to own. There's no judgment or blame in that. It's just, I dent my children. I was dented by my parents. My children are going to dent their children someday. And it becomes the child's responsibility. Learn the communication model. I just did the broadcast on Monday on the communication skills idea. Listen to that podcast if you want to be helpful. Give support to your family member or loved one who's going through this process, the parents that are going through this process, rather than asking for what you need. Be careful of asking for too many updates and too much information. Realize that that might be a lot for them and see what they need from you. So what's the take home? The take home is that this is a compassionate, powerful therapeutic program set in the outdoors, offering healing to those struggling with mental health or substance abuse issues. Offer support. Instead of bringing your crisis, your anxiety and your judgment, to the family member that's, that's made this decision, offer your support, see what they need from you. Learn some of the things, listen to some of the things that they're learning. The podcast can be helpful in that. Listen and learn and educate yourself about this and know that, this is, that, that what we teach is not common sense. This requires an uncommon sense. So those are some of the ways that you can be helpful. That's kind of the take homes from this. Send in any questions. I'm gonna go over upcoming events and announcements. I'll take any questions at the end. We ask all family members to go to six 12-step support groups. Any combination of Al-Anon, Codependence Anonymous, Families Anonymous, or Adult Children Anonymous. Alateen is for uh, teenagers, teenagers that are related to people that are struggling with drugs or mental health issues. Refuge Recovery is a, a support group for people that, that have a problem with a higher power. Um, it's a, it's a Buddhist-based approach, mindfulness-based approach. And then NAMI.org, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, has chapters in every community that helps people and offers free resources to people that have struggles in and around mental health or have loved ones who have struggled. All of these broadcasts are available on the podcast app. On an iPhone, you search Evoke Therapy Programs on your iPhone. Search it on the, the using the podcast app on an Android device. Use the SoundCloud app. On your computer, go to soundcloud.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Evoke Therapy. You can also find the Evoke Summit Lodge. That's where we do our intensive work for, for parents and families.
Find us by searching Evoke Therapy Programs on Facebook. You can also find the Alumni Foundation, which is an organization of alumni parents to help people that can't afford therapy. Our blog, of course, has new content each week. My book, The Journey of the Rogue Parent, my first book, is available on Amazon. The, the main warehouse is, is, will be restocked on May 21st. Until then, you can still buy it from the Evoke Warehouse by clicking on the new option under the paperback button. If you want to do your own work, and by the way, I do this every year. Everybody in my family has done this. If you want to do your own work, your own deep dive into your own work, Finding You is the place. We still have one or two seats left in our next Finding You. That's next week, May 15th through 19th, set in our Park City Lodge. It's a wonderful, wonderful investment, not just in you, but in your child. This, in my opinion, is the number one thing that anybody can do to support the change that their child is making. And, and, and I can't overstate that. We also have a, a Finding You too for those that have been through it coming up this summer. Next parent support group will be in New York, Monday, May 13th. So this Monday, I'll see you Monday at 7 to 9 p.m. I'll be in Toronto on May 22nd and 7 to 9 p.m. Contact Melanie at evoketherapy.com to RSVP or for more information. We ask all current parents to come to a workshop. The next one is in our Southern Utah location, May 18th through 19th. So if you're a current parent and you can possibly come, this is for you. Contact Melanie at evoketherapy.com. Pursuits trips are all over the world, like I said. Think therapy light or, or re, kind of reconnecting to your therapy. It's for young adults or families. Any kind of adventure activity anywhere where in the world. South America, Nepal, British Columbia, Southern Utah is a great location um, for, for adventure activities. And it's three to 30 day programs, custom built. All right, if there are any other questions that have come in, I'm happy to take them. Looks like I've answered the one question that has come in about um, what they eat. The other question is what, what will happen when they come home? It's difficult. It, it's not, it's important that you not put pressure on them to be cured or fixed. They're not going to be cured or fixed. They're going to have had a wonderful experience, but they need some grace to not be perfect. It needs to not be pass or fail, black or white. And the most important thing you can do is learn a little bit. This is from a 13 year old. Learn a little bit about what they're learning. And, and the fact that you've joined this tonight is fantastic. Listen to one of the podcasts on communication. Listen to one or two of the podcasts. Read a book that they've read so that you understand what they're learning. Listen to what they've learned. Ask questions about what they need. But it's really important that you know that this is a, a long journey. You don't complete it when you're done. And you're gonna have you're gonna have old behaviors and relapses. And you're also gonna have, as a, as a graduate of our program, you're gonna have new skills, new insight, more patience, more strength. But it's not pass or fail, black or white. So thank you for the question. All right, are there any other questions, Lindsay? Looks like that's all the questions. Thank you for joining us. I hope this is a helpful point of contact. I'm gonna talk about the Evoke Therapy Lifecycle on our next broadcast. I'm gonna be unavailable next week. So the next one will actually be 
on a Sunday, Sunday, May 19th at 1 p.m. Mountain Time. That what I mean is what's the growth process look like? What's the stages of change look like from the beginning and the middle and the end of a book? So I'm going to kind of walk you through a typical kind of, of growth curve of, of a growth process at Evoke. So that's what we're going to be talking about on Sunday, May 19th at 1 p.m. Mountain Time. I hope these broadcasts are a helpful point of contact. And for those of you who are families and friends listening to this, I hope this gives you some idea about how you can be more supportive and come from a more understanding and knowledgeable place about what your, your loved one is going through who's in our program and the parents who have made the decision to, to send or support their young adult child coming to us. Take care, folks. Have a great evening, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Madden.